0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. MTV's official challenge podcast is back for another season. And so
1: are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is
3: Put yourself in a situation, listeners. Imagine that you have been driving all day, but not on any road trip. No, on a mission of vengeance. Your heart is thumping, your body is on its last legs, and you might be about to blow up your car or make history. Hi, my name is Ben.
2: My name is Noel, and Ben, I have to tell you, and I'm going to come clean right up front, it wasn't until doing the research for this episode that I actually understood why those people drive around in circles all day long.
3: Right. Yes. Today we are delving into racing, not just any race, but uh, one of the most important moments in one of the world's most important races. And for a lot of people who aren't already race fans, racing's a weird thing. You know what I mean? Like, well, you're just, what, everybody's just going left for a while?
2: I just straight up didn't understand the rules or anything about it. Like, I I just didn't. So this was a very eye-opening thing for me. And I am going to defer largely to you on this, Ben, because uh, many listeners may know you had a podcast for many years called Car Stuff, where you delved into all things automotive. And I believe you guys did an episode on this very subject.
3: Yes, yes. Thank you, Noel. Yes, my uh, co-host, Scott Benjamin, and I, who longtime listeners will remember from several other, other shows, including Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, which you, Noel, and I do with our esteemed compatriot, Matt Frederick. Uh, we spent nine years examining everything that floats, flies, swims, or drives. That's a dope tagline. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, man. And one of the things that we loved exploring and that listeners loved exploring with us was the behind-the-scenes stories of – automotive fame or infamy because you know nowadays we're recording this in 2018 you can look at the hundreds of new cars that come out every year and you can tell that millions of dollars of research and design went into them but we often forget the personal inspirations behind them
2: Well, and it's also with today, other than, like, you know, your electric cars and Teslas and things like that, there aren't a whole lot of aha moments as far as motoring is concerned. Like, you've got your McLarens and these, like, million-dollar supercars, which is all very niche and interesting, but – back in the days that we're talking about it was kind of like the wild west there weren't as many regulations in place racing was a much more dangerous sport it's still pretty dangerous but mm. in terms of you you talked about explosions that was a regular occurrence but innovation was something that was i feel like was much more hard fought
3: yeah i would agree because in every every new car that you see nowadays stands on the shoulders of giants, right? And people will spend years figuring out how to get what would seem to be a largely minuscule edge in performance, and racing is where we see this to the most extreme extent. I almost say cartoonish, but to the most extreme extent. And today, you and I and our super producer, Casey Pegram... Are exploring one of the uh, most ridiculous stories in the world. Are we supposed to acknowledge that Casey
2: exists as a uh, as a Mario sound effect?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's why it comes up now.
2: Is it okay for us to acknowledge that? Does it cheapen it? Does it does it take away the fun?
3: I don't think so. Do you think so? I think it's delightful. I look forward to it every time. Uh, Also, Noel and I try to listen to the episodes after we record them to make sure that we don't sound too ridiculous and. I got to tell you, that sound cue is one of my favorite parts.
2: We have to sound just ridiculous enough. And Casey, as you know from the segment Casey on the Case, which we'll be returning, does in fact have a corporeal form Mm -hmm. and a voice. But from time to time, he exists in the form of a... Sorry to make you do it again.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So, so this is something that we wanted to bring to you today, friends and neighbors. Uh, Whether or not you are a racing fan, you will find this interesting because this is not just a story about racing. Not really. It's a story about revenge. A story about beef. (laughs) Yes, a story about titans of industry with very, very personal and, dare I say, petty problems with each other. And our story begins today with, well, you'll see people say it begins in the early 1960s, but you can trace it a little further back. In October 10th of 1901, Henry Ford, the legendary, mad genius Henry Ford, won a race with a car he had built called Sweepstakes, and he always loved racing. But the thing about Ford, one of the largest car manufacturers, was that they were not building cars To win races, they were building cars to be affordable for the average American and then later the average citizen of the world. I believe there
2: was a a, even a beef at this point. A a driver by the name of Alexander Winton was the biggest hotshot race car driver of the day. And Ford was just bound and determined to kick his butt. And and he did just that. And then that kind of opened the doors for Ford, where people were like, whoa, we want to help this guy do everything we can to get his fledgling car company off the ground.
3: Yeah, exactly. And by golly, by gum, or whatever they used as a phrase of exclamation in those times, it worked. And Henry Ford, not by any means a perfect man, uh, went on to be the head of one of history's most successful car companies. Fast forward to the 1960s when Henry Ford's son, named in a burst of creativity, Henry Ford II, Electric Boogaloo joke or no?
2: Sure, you just—it's done. <laughs> it's out there. What's done is done, my friend.
3: So now we're in the 1960s. Henry Ford II is the chief executive of Ford. That's right. Henry
2: Ford II came out of the Navy to run the company that his father had started after Henry Ford uh, Senior had gotten a little too up there in years to continue running it. And Ford the Second, let's go. I like two. We're gonna go. I'm gonna go for Ford two. I'm good with that. Yeah. He didn't know a whole lot about running the business, but he was savvy enough to hire people that did. So we hired this, like, brain trust, this group of marketers and finance experts and just, in general, very, very smart, well-equipped people that was known as the whiz kids. And then the Ford company kind of entered
3: a new era. Yes, exactly. Because, you see, the thing that happens often with family companies is they will either remain ideologically aligned with the founder or ideologically opposite. And in this case, Henry Ford II or two loved the things that his father loved. And one of those was racing. And by the time two becomes the uh, chief executive, Ford never quite manages to get the acclaim they wanted with racing. They're associated with some great vehicles, but those vehicles are not associated with winning prestigious races.
2: This is very true, and that's because, like you said, their main focus was not necessarily on innovation technologically, but it was on really pushing that marketing angle and selling the American dream to that, uh, nuclear family that was so popular in all the ad campaigns we see. Um, they were referred to as living rooms on wheels <laughs> and they were sold as part of that American dream ideal. Um, there really wasn't any interest in having any sporty qualities or like good handling, um, or anything like that. And just to give you a sense of the vibe of these Ad campaigns, a quote from one of the Ford commercials is, is as such. And out on the highway, the Ford in your future with its lower, safer center of gravity provides a smooth and midship ride,
3: quiet as a whisper and gentle as a summer breeze. Well read, Noel. Well read. And this is accurate. This is not a bunch of advertising smoke. People were buying Fords for that reason, to satisfy that demand to participate as we established, in the American dream. So, two decides that one way to innovate Ford as a brand is to become known not just as a rolling living room for the average well-to-do American, but to be known as a credible racing manufacturer. And here they run into a bit of a catch-22. Up until this point, most successful racing vehicles – came from dedicated racing teams. So they would build, you know, a small number of very high-end cars, right, or even custom cars, and these cars would not be, in several cases, would not be considered uh, street legal. They're not what we call daily drivers. They are built to kill other cars on the racetrack, So if you are a company with a ton of money and a ton of credibility in regular daily driving, you have to find a way to break into this market and money alone is not going to help you immediately. The best way to build a reputation in the racing world is to either win a race yourself, which is very, 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 very difficult coming in new and coming in green, or as we see a lot of larger companies doing today in places like Silicon Valley and in other industries, to find a smaller company that does one thing and does it really well and buy them, so too. And his brain trust, the the whiz kids that Noel mentioned earlier, said, "Let's go buy." A racing company, and then we can take their expertise, we can take their experience and their knowledge, and we can make it a part of us, the same way that Rome would conquer other territories. And two went to a race, and in that race, he saw a shiny
2: Italian uh, sexy sports car um, with that badge that we know so well, the rearing uh, horse on the yellow background, the Ferrari. And he saw it win, and then and there decided that he wanted to buy that company because Ferrari had a storied history in the European racing game.
3: Yes, and one contrast between Ferrari and Ford is that in Ferrari's case, the founder – Enzo Ferrari is still very very active and if you've uh, if you've ever learned much about the history of Enzo Ferrari you will see that what we're saying is absolutely true storied racing history and also nothing to sneeze at but Enzo Ferrari is a legendarily <clears throat> cantankerous individual
2: Let's just give him a little bit of backstory. Um, Enzo Ferrari was born in 1898 in northern Italy, and he grew up uh, relatively poor in a rural area, father of a metal worker, and they produced parts for the Italian railway. He went to his first race in 1908 and decided he was just in love with the sport and wanted to be a race car driver. World War I took Enzo's father and brother from him, and he, too, joined the army and helped maintain their motor pool for the Mm -hmm. artillery division. After the war, he sold the family home to buy race cars. Then he won – His first race in 1924 uh, using an Alfa Romeo, and it totally changed his life. Alfa Romeo at the time were having some financial problems, so they gave control of their motorsports division to Enzo because he had proven himself a worthy racer and a smart businessman. That's in 1933. Exactly. And he and his team won the prestigious 24 Hours at Le Mans race four times.
3: Yes. Uh, This, we're already seeing uh, a little bit of... Ferrari's bona fides here because he is the best kind of person to run a racing company, a former racer, and Alfa took control of its racing efforts again in 1937, and they, I guess you could phrase it as a demotion, they moved his position, Enzo's position to director of sports, mm. and he soldiered on, but in 1939, he left Alfa Romeo uh, and he agreed to some terms that would later haunt him, a kind of exclusivity agreement. He said that he would not use the name Ferrari in relation to racing and racing cars for four years. But then World War II hit,
2: and it turned out that he and his company were quite – cut out for helping build planes for the war effort. Hmm. So it almost made it a moot point that he couldn't get right into building race cars and getting back into the racing game, but I'm sure he missed it very much.
3: Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a good point because World War II affected all auto manufacturers across the planet. Including? Including Henry Ford, you're right.
2: And right after the war ended, Ferrari had his chance when in 1949 he entered the... Uh, 24 hour at Le Mans race and totally dominated. And that became a fixture of that prestigious race. Ferrari reigned supreme.
3: Right. Yeah. Ferrari won multiple Le Mans after that time. So it's no surprise that two is impressed when he sees Ferrari on the track because Ferrari is a known dominant force here and Two says to his brain trust, to his executives, to his entourage, uh, he says, I want that one. And for some reason, I kind of picture it like a, a Veruca salt in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory <laughs> yeah. situation. Yeah. I want that one. And, uh, the, here's how it works out. He sends his trusted emissary, a guy named Don Fry, to negotiate with Ferrari and they propose an acquisition deal that hits the following points. Ford wants to buy a 90% stake in the Italian company for 18 million dollars. Under this agreement, it is important to say they would still be relying on Ferrari and Co.'s racing expertise.
2: They were going to actually spin that off into a racing division that would be called Ferrari Ford. Right. But Ford had veto power over a few pretty important
3: things. Right. And this is where the, <laughs> this is where the discord seeps in because we, we can't emphasize enough that we're talking about two very large personalities. That's the polite way to put it. And what happens is Ferrari toward the very end of the deal, decides he's not into it. And this is the point where you'll begin to hear the conflicting accounts of how it went down, some of which is still in debate today. The Ferrari side says that they found a deal breaker in the agreement. And that deal breaker was the veto power that you mentioned, Noel, uh, specifically in the idea that Ford, the larger company, would have to green light expenditures.
2: Yeah, and I also actually, in a film called The 24 Hour War that, uh, does a really good job of chronicling this whole, uh, beef situation, um, it's mentioned that the points in contention had to do with the fact that Ford had the power to decide which races they'd participate in and which drivers to use. And Enzo. That's the biggest one. Enzo had like spent his life in this industry, knew these cars, knew this game. Mm-hmm. He wasn't gonna have some stuffed shirt American tell him what to do.
3: Right. And- And you'll hear on the Ford side, you'll hear people arguing that Ferrari was just looking for an excuse to not do the deal. But on the Ferrari side, these sound like understandable deal breakers, don't they?
2: it does and it also was much 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 smaller company than mm-hmm. than Ford and there was a sense i believe from Ferrari that he didn't want to be swallowed up by this bmf bureaucracy
3: right we have the uh, specific quote here from a book called ford gt how ford silenced the critics humbled ferrari and i'm not going to tell you the rest of the title because i don't want to give away the episode <laughs> yeah, totally. uh but it's by an author named Preston Lerner and in the book the quote from Enzo himself is this. Uh, He says he doesn't want to become another cog in what he describes as the enormous machine, the suffocating bureaucracy of the Ford Motor Company. I'm styling a little bit on that. I just want to be clear that he's using the name Ford Motor Company with intense opprobrium, you know. And so he he says, we can't agree to this. You can't choose the races. You can't choose the racers. I know them. I know the racers and the racing both. And if we want to spend money on something, it should be up to me how I spend it. Yeah,
2: and spending money is going to become a big part of this story really soon. Um, I just want to pull a little bit of a quote from a review of this movie. "Is Ford and Ferrari make racing a grudge match in the 24-hour war. Um. The 24-Hour War is a somewhat jingoistic documentary about that celebrated and deadly dangerous feud, one that spilled over from the boardrooms and onto the world's great racetracks for one, all the marbles decade. And I just wanted to point that out because the film does kind of cast Ferrari as a bit of like a Bond villain type figure. An antagonistic force, yeah. And, And the Ford folks are kind of portrayed as the great American heroes in the story. And as we just said, it is not nearly that cut and dry. This is a man who built a company with his bare hands from the ground up and still was in control of it mm-hmm. as opposed to having it been passed down. Um, you know, Ford too. I don't think he was really much involved in the company before he kind of came out of the Navy to join up and, right. and take it over from his father. So I don't know. I just think that's a little bit, it's a little bit unfair the way the film has that kind of like uh, adversarial,
3: you know, divide there. I agree with that completely because Again, big personalities. They're not, we're not saying that either of them are villains, but we are saying when Don Fry comes back and says, sorry boss, that, that dog doesn't hunt. What happens is Ford too is livid. He is furious. His bellows of anger are resounding throughout Ford Motor Company. And he says, screw this. Screw you. No deal. You're right. No deal. And worse than no deal, I'm coming for you, Enzo. I think the quote that I saw was <laughs> something along the lines of, we're going to Le Mans
2: and we're going to beat his ass. Yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. If we, if we can't join up with them, then by God, by golly, by gum, we're going to beat them. So Ford 2 says, I don't care about the cost. I don't care about the time. I don't care about who we need to hire. I don't care about what we need to build or where we need to find it. I will do anything within this company's power to beat this guy
0: happy pride from tomboy x we just dropped our pride 24 collection queer founded queer run and creating size and gender inclusive underwear swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin visit tomboyx.com to shop it's the kia summer sticker
1: sales event so give your friends something to look at like a BB and b with an ocean view an endless field of wildflowers
2: Ford had to, you know, he had a, he had a big job on his hands. He had to build a car from scratch in a game that they were not schooled in cuz that you know that's why they wanted to buy Ferrari in the first place. Mm-hmm. They didn't really have the know-how or the team put together to match what Ferrari had been building for years and years and years. Um and the car that ultimately would be the fruits of this uh beef mm-hmm. was the GT40.
3: Yeah, the Ford GT40, GT standing for Grand Touring Vehicle. It was And 40 being the height of the roof, I think. Yes, yeah, overall height 40 inches. I uh, that's something that was required in racing rules at the time. It had a large displacement V8 engine, and they had to teach themselves a lot of things that they did not know as a car company. It wasn't in what corporate folks today would call their DNA. So going back to a point we established earlier, they did something very, very smart, which is they started pulling outside expertise. And again, at this point, we have to emphasize this. Racing is a very small world. People know each other. So if Ford is going around grabbing some experts, then all the other people are hearing about it. Enzo had to know that this was coming. Enzo Ferrari had to have some sort of spider sense about this at the at the minimum.
2: But when you look at Enzo Ferrari and just the way he carried himself, I can picture him saying, "Let him come." Oh yeah, absolutely.
3: And that was more
2: of a French accent. I can't really do Italian very well.
3: I feel like if we try to do Italian, we might both end up being offensive. Yeah, let's let's just skip it. Yeah, we'll just use the power of your imagination, dear listeners. Can
2: I drop some GT40 specs as if I know anything about cars? Yeah, please do. Cool. I'm sure you got them. Cool. So it was a magnesium cast. Uh, you had 92 separate parts, which is a big deal. And every single element of this vehicle from the pedal to the hood were custom fabricated. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a unibody and it had as much detail and definition as anything that they would have made. Uh, for mass production, more so probably because of the fact that it was, for all intents and purposes, a custom job.
3: Right, and they used one of the races that they did participate in was the Indianapolis 500, which I think is one of, the Indy 500 is one of the things that really soured the deal between Ferrari. That was one of the races that he would not be allowed to participate in because Ford didn't want competition because they would get their ass kicked, probably. Mm-hmm. And when they started building The GT40, they were using, as Noel said, a lot of custom design. They were using a lot of lessons learned from their Indy 500 project. So they also started, as we said, pulling in a couple of different luminaries of the time. Um, They spoke with Colin Chapman, uh, legendary driving force behind Lotus. And they also negotiated with Lola and Cooper, and Cooper at the time was known for Formula One, but they were kind of in a a decline at the time, and they had no experience in GT or or prototype building.
2: I think one of the features that I should have mentioned that Mm -hmm. is is a hallmark of the GT40 is that it was very low, very low to the ground.
3: Yeah, very low to the ground, which is important in racing there. And equally important, too, with the the vehicle itself is the race— in which they decided this beef would culminate. And that brought them to the most prestigious race in Europe at the time, the 24-hour of Le Mans.
2: Can you give us a little bit of a scoop on what that race is all about? I know at the top of the show I made it clear that I only recently discovered what one of these races is even about, but I still am a little in the dark about the legacy of this course.
3: Oh, boy. Okay, uh, This Uh you're going to enjoy this. So... The 24 Hour of Le Mans is named after the town, the the closest town to where it occurs, which is Le Mans in France. It's the world's oldest sports car race that's still active. It's been held since 1923 with, I believe, a mm, couple wartime complications, World War II stuff, but – This has, for the longest time, been one of the hallmarks of any racing company. If you walk away with a victory at Le Mans, then your cars are sold. Because it's about endurance, right? Right. Instead of focusing on just the fastest machine, the Le Mans concentrates on the ability to build cars that are both sporty and reliable. So... The vehicles have to have fantastic handling. They have to still be aerodynamic and stable at high speeds. And the race begins in mid-afternoon and ends the following day at the same hour. It literally is 24 hours. And there are other races that are like 12 hours, right? Right. There are other endurance races that approach this kind of thing, but Le Mans was one of the first to do this.
2: So how does that differentiate from, say, like Talladega or mm-hmm. Daytona? Like, what's the difference?
3: Uh, so one of the differences, well, let's take – Let's take Indy 500. Sure, since we're talking about that one. So one of the differences with Indy 500 is that the drivers race a specific number of laps. They race 200 laps, counterclockwise, they go 500 miles. So there's this, there's this specific thing uh, in terms of distance as a rating. However, in Le Mans, it's get as far as you can within that span of 24 hours. Cover the most distance in 24 hours. Right. Without your car catching on fire, without getting in a wreck. And it's at night,
2: too. It's like they go they go, go steady for 24
3: hours. And just to drop a few little
2: interesting nuggets about Le Mans and racing in these days in general, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, motor racing was absurdly violent. Death was commonplace. Yes. Um, The 1955 Le Mans had one of the most most horrific crashes in racing history. Uh, a car exploded, killing around 90 people when flaming debris rocketed into the packed seats. People didn't typically wear seatbelts because part of the thing at Le Mans is you have to run from across the track right. and hop into your car and then – Get going. The drivers. So, yeah. A lot of times they didn't feel like uh, taking the time to put on their seatbelts. Um, and not to mention that fires and explosions were so common that they wanted to be able to escape.
3: Right. That's why – because a seatbelt might be as dangerous to you in their view as not wearing one. Yeah, the 1955 Le Mans disaster didn't just change Le Mans. It changed motorsports entirely. And it actually, the catastrophe, I think we mentioned around 90 people died. 83 spectators definitely. Some, a driver died as well. There were almost 200 injuries. 180 people at least got injured. And this actually led Mercedes-Benz to retire from racing until 1989.
2: In 1957, there was another race called the Mil Miglia Road Race and there were five Ferraris in that race. Uh, one of them that was driven by a racer by the name of Alfonso de Portago had a tire blowout, careened into the crowd of spectators. He was killed, his co-driver was killed, and a number of spectators, including five children, were killed. Um, and, and this comes from the 24-hour war. Uh, this is really fascinating to me. In Italian law, when someone is killed in a car the manufacturer was held accountable in those days so enzo ferrari himself was called before the law and had to plead his case he was investigated but ultimately found innocent because it was a racing accident and everyone knew what they were signing up for when they stand on the sidelines and watch these crazy things
3: and if you see the old footage of these kinds of races you'll notice that the spectators are right next to these vehicles. Then they're going at insane curves, Horrifying. insane speeds. Up over 250 miles an hour, mm-hmm. I think,
2: top speeds in those days. Nowadays, it's mandated that they, they can't go that fast.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's true. And it depends upon the race, but most races now will have pretty stringent safety requirements, and things still go horribly wrong at times. But... When we look at Ferrari and Le Mans, despite the, despite the dangers, despite the court case, despite the deaths and the injuries and the catastrophic accidents, Ferrari is dominating, and they're dominating the most important race in the world. We should also say that that track they're driving on for 24 hours was at the time uh, 8.4 miles long. From the 50s to the mid-60s, Ferrari cars were dominating the event. Between 1958 and 1965, Ferrari vehicles and drivers won seven of the eight races, which, you know, makes them – the equivalent of – for sports fans, their winning streak is, is similar to the winning streak of the New England Patriots or the New York Yankees. Irritating. Irritating to everyone else, right? Okay. So we're in 1964 now. Here we are.
2: Ford makes its debut of the GT40 at Le Mans. Mm-hmm. Millions are tuning in. This is like the battle of the titans of industry, like we described at the top of the show. Crowds were bigger than they'd ever been. Uh, there were three GT40s in the race, uh, and they were by far the lowest cars. It was like a design that was not as
3: common, right? Yeah, These things look like, uh, space aliens. Like, are they supposed to be there? Is this, is this a race? How the heck are these vehicles going to perform against all these tried and true racing teams that perfected art over decades and spoiler alert? Not well. (laughs) Yeah. Not well. Not well at all. (laughs)
2: Including a fiery explosion. Luckily, no one was killed. But not a single Ford got anywhere near the finish line.
3: No, not at all. It was – for a first swing out, it was pretty disastrous and it proved a lot of the skepticism – that racing fans had uh, about Ford entering in for the first time, everybody was thinking, ah, there's no way, this is too new, they don't have experience, and this is a dangerous endeavor. So two, Ford two was mm-hmm. understandably
2: livid, and he, he was like, we are going to make whatever changes we have to make to beat that sexy, sexy Italian man.
3: And so... Those are my words, not his. The, well, it's a, I think it's a good paraphrase. That quote was based on a true story. <laughs> so, so here we go, there's, you know, again, such anger and vim from Ford too, and he says, you know what, I need more experts, I need more people to help me in my vendetta, so, he finds uh, some more folks to help them, and one of them is the legendary Carroll Shelby.
2: He is probably the most important other player in this story. Uh, Shelby drove in some of the first races in American history in Watkins Glen, New York. There's a story in that he tells himself in the 24-hour war. He says he got his license when he was 14 and immediately got pulled over by the police for driving his father's (laughs) 34 Dodge 85 miles an hour, which would have been... An insane speed for for that car, right, Ben?
3: Yes, absolutely, Noel. And you can find a pretty interesting argument for this in another another book called Go Like Hell, Ford, Ferrari, and their battle for speed and glory at Le Mans. When they got Carroll Shelby on the team, it it was kind of like when the Avengers got Thor or something, someone with honest honest superpowers, and they they began working with him, Don Fry still in the mix, uh, as was Leo Beeb, uh, and they said, you know what, Shelby is going to take the lessons from our less than awesome performance and show us how to make this something that isn't dismal. So they handed the program over to Shelby after a 1964 Nassau race. They sent the cars directly to Shelby. Like, they didn't even wash them, dude. They were still dirty, and they were like, all right, he's in. Just send him now. Send him, send him. Well,
2: Shelby was a really punchy character, too. He actually won Le Mans as a racer in 59 mm-hmm. despite having serious health problems. He had a heart condition and is said to have raced with a nitroglycerin tablet un- under his tongue. Uh, and then he went on and actually got support from Ford to build his own – after he retired from racing, to build his own sports cars. So he went to Lee Iacocca, who was a big-time executive, and pitched him on this idea of – American sports cars, Iacocca it sounded like uh, he wanted to get rid of him so he gave him a few engines and some money and said do your thing Mm -hmm. and they made this car called the Cobra uh, with this team of kind of ragtag team of uh, folks from across all over the place like he had uh, experts, hot rod experts from all over the world and it performed, they did well at all of the big races and they won Le Mans in 1964 with the model of this Cobra they called the Daytona Coupe because they had made it specifically for Daytona but that when Ford was like, okay, I like this kid. I like the cut of his jib. Ooh. I like the cut of his bib overalls, which he apparently wore a lot. Yeah. And and a, uh, a dream team was born.
3: Yes, the dream team was born. Uh, and he also had a common villain in Enzo Ferrari yep. because Shelby, you see, also was not a fan of Ferrari or at least Ferrari hated him because Ferrari had been beaten by Shelby at Le Mans in 1959 when Shelby was driving for Aston Martin.
2: He tried to recruit him as well to drive for him.
3: Yeah, and Shelby said, nah. Uh, Again, this is another cantankerous guy. Shelby often complained to Ford that the cars were terribly maintained, sort of a what am I supposed to do with this situation. So in 1965, they were— there at Le Mans, driving a new version of the GT40 called the Mark II, and they started out doing really well. People thought, hey, this might change the racing game. But again, over that 24 hour period, all of their cars were forced out of the race by mechanical bugs.
2: I think there was even a story where one of the racers had to push his car for a few miles. And I think there was even a thing where Ford at the last minute insisted they switch out the engines to, like, a newer engine that they had done. And that last-minute shuffle kind of screwed them over a little bit and um, mm-hmm. maybe caused some of those mechanical failures. I think There was an issue of bolts that had expanded and cracked and just caused some problems because of that last-minute switch.
3: Right, and... We should also say 1965, it's the same year that Ford showed off these GTs that they would later use in Le Mans, and even the Ford company wasn't able to estimate how much they cost. They, like, didn't know.
2: Yeah, and I saw an article on Thrillist that that used the phrase, uh, a budget of roughly infinity.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Say what you will about Ford, too. He was serious when he was beefed up. So they don't take this punch on the chin lightly. They come back the very next year, and they have fixed these various problems. They've taken the lessons learned, and they come back with even better cars. And 1966 is when everything changes for Ford, Le Mans, Ferrari, and the world. Yeah, because they they
2: decided they had to kind of think about the problem differently, and they abandoned the smaller engines in favor of what has become uh, termed as big block cars um, because they needed more horsepower, and that was how they would get the edge on the zippy, light, smaller-engined, is that a thing, Ferraris?
3: <laughs> yeah, so they did institute the big block. That's absolutely correct, and... They had some experience leading up to 1966 Le Mans because they won the 24 hours of Daytona and the 12 hours of Sebring before with this big block Ford that Noel just mentioned. They also sent a lot of cars. They sent eight GTO Mark IIs with three teams – Three teams by Shelby American, three teams by Holman & Moody, and two by Alan Mann Racing. So, again, we're seeing that Ford is pulling in the expertise of these pre-existing racing geniuses. Ferrari, in contrast, only sent, uh, I think, two Ferrari 330 P3s to compete, and that was sent by them directly. There was an outfit called NART that entered another P3, and then there were four cars entered by Ferrari's private partners. They were going to have John Surtees racing with them, but surprise, he had a, I'm doing air quotes here, No, he had a falling out with Ferrari management. Mm. So it sounds like Enzo got in another argument of some sort. So this race is insane, and... Behind the scenes, Ford is so certain that they're going to win that they tell two of their drivers that they think are going to be in the front lines. They tell them that they want them to finish at the same time.
2: And that's to drive home the fact that it was the car –
3: and not necessarily the drivers that accounted for the victory. Right, because drivers, as you could imagine, might have a bit of ego. So they said, yeah, we want to show that it is the superiority of us as manufacturers, not just the individuals behind the wheel. Should we play a
2: clip from that uh, stunning conclusion?
3: Fantastic. And here they come for the finish. First place, the number two Ford GT. Second place. The number one
2: Ford GT. Third place. The number five Ford GT.
4: An authoritative win for the American Challengers.
3: So not only does Ford take first place in this event, but they also take... Second and third. Right. Second and third. The number two uh, Ford GT40 takes first place. The number one takes second place. And the number five takes third place. And this is one of those moments in history where you have to wonder what Enzo Ferrari's face looked like. It was probably like
2: a, a bit of a, a scowl.
3: Yeah, it probably wasn't a big cheese eaten grin.
2: how yeah, he always looked a little demure. I wonder if he ever changed his expression much.
3: Yeah, you know, he's a guy who had a lot on his mind. And I know we're we're dinging him a little bit, but we we want to, again, highlight that there's not really a bad guy in this story. Nope. It's just two people who really hated each other. And because of their enmity, because they were so beefed up, they managed to make a beautiful car that changed the world.
2: And in a documentary, Ferrari's son... Um, has a pretty chill attitude about the whole thing and has some really nice things to say about Ford and is very even handed with his thinking about this. Um, so then the next year, of course, uh, Ford returns to Le Mans and adding insult to injury, uh, wipes the floor with Ferrari yet again with wins in, in first, second, and third place once again. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. They mop up once again and this changes the, the, concept of who can win a race globally. Also, it creates a new model. So the same kind of innovation in terms of assembly and distribution and output that the original Ford company had, building the Model T and the Model A, is still going strong in Ford in the 60s here because they have unveiled a new model for manufacturers, and the model is providing money and internal research and design while farming out the actual racing to the professionals. This didn't just change the operations at Le Mans, but it also changed the operations in Formula One, NASCAR, other other world-famous racing events. And additionally, this is something that stayed with Ford as a manufacturer because in 2016, to celebrate the 50th anniversary, they attempted to execute the same sort of coup. And they more or less did. They more or less did. They didn't win. Uh, Porsche won that year, and Porsche has been dominating a lot of Le Mans. So they didn't win, but they did come back, and they, and they tried to take some of the innovations that they have in their street level cars and make a racing car out of them. So they used an EcoBoost engine, which was a little bit smaller, too. And, well, you know. Well, and and I would say the takeaway here for me is that Ford
2: was kind of a big fat baby. Honestly, you know, because (laughs) Ferrari was doing Le Mans since the beginning and continued doing it in that 50-year span where Ford was not. And they only came back, to kind of thumb their nose at their old rivals again. So it was like, you know, Ford too wanted to make a point and he did it. And then he was kind of, I'm out. So I
3: yeah. don't know. I would argue it's, it's a little childish. He's just not the kind of guy I would want to play Monopoly or cards with. You know what I mean? I Definitely think of a he, Veruca Salt kind of figure. He could take Uno real hard, but this, this concludes one of the. One of the most ridiculous stories of pettiness is spitefulness in racing. And I would argue that it has a happy ending because the Ford GT is a beautiful vehicle. Cool car. Cool car. Cool car.
2: And Ferraris are still too expensive for anyone to own.
3: Right, right. We do have someone in our building who owns a Ferrari. I used to sneak up and look at it. Quick story, I was on an emotional roller coaster, no I couldn't decide if I liked the guy because one time I went up there and he was double-parked in a parking spot Nope. and I thought I get mm-hmm. it man but don't you know don't don't buy the car so I did some investigation and um, Scott Car Stuff co-host did some as well and it turns out the guy's paying for both parking spots so he's an ethical double parker oh
2: oh my gosh That's, that is we got a double happy ending here <laughs> we did we did Let us know your position on double parking. Uh, Let us know if there are any particular car brands that when you see them on the road, you immediately despise the owner. Ben, I believe for you that is the Odyssey, the Honda Odyssey, right? Does
3: that still hold true? Well, the thing about a Honda Odyssey is I think when you buy it, the dealers give you a discount if you agree to have a sensor installed that makes your car go 20 miles an hour whenever I'm in traffic with it. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. We'll write us.
2: Yeah. Write us. Ridiculous at HowStuffWorks.com. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Ridiculous History. Blasting through these because this was a long
3: one. But um, thanks to super producer Casey. Yeah, thanks to Alex Williams who composed the track. Uh Thanks to Henry Ford II and Enzo Ferrari. And most importantly, thanks to you folks. And we hope you join us next time when Noel and I are using our world-famous time machine to travel to the Wild West.
2: Get along, little doggies.
0: pride from tomboy x we just dropped our pride 24 collection queer founded queer run and creating size and gender inclusive underwear swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin visit TomboyX.com to shop mtv's official challenge podcast is back
1: for another season and so are we i'm tori deal and i'm anisa ferreira the wait is over guys all stars four is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene
0: was good?